talk about this movie. That's quite good. It is quite good. Secret Agent Man. Welcome back to EnterTheRealWorld.com. This is Secret Agent Men, a podcast looking at Bond, Born, and Mission Impossible. It's finally time. Daddy's home. James Bond, Casino Royale, Episode 6. My name is Matt Waters. I'm joined, as always, on this endeavour by Ben Phillips. Ben, how are you? It's one of our earliest records. I'm off to the cinema after this to see Waves, so... Oh, are you excited for that? I'm being told it's very distressing. Oh, okay then. This film can be distressing in places... But mostly it's a delight. But before we get into it, as this is our first visit to James Bond, and we're not starting at the beginning as we did with Bourne and Mission Impossible because there are soon to be 25 of the damn things. Are you going to recap the plot of every single James Bond movie right now? (laughs) Alright, he is a spy. He can kill people if he wants. He sleeps with the ladies and kills foreign terrorists. Frequently he says, I'm retired, and they bring him back for one last mission. One time he got married, it was pretty good, but people make fun of the movie because the dude only did one of them. (laughs) Then there were cars that go invisible, and solar satellite lasers, and racial transplant surgeries, and diamond skin. And now we have this one. So what is your personal history with James Bond? Because, I mean, it is such a like British institution. They are constantly on television. Like it's a big thing when you're growing up. I feel well for me at least. It's like oh everybody's watching Bond together. And... Yeah. See, my my dad used to really like them, and like mm. they would be on. But I think I never really engaged with any of them in any significant way. It was like they would be on, and I would kind of go like, mm. oh, where's this? I was more interested in kind of like the structure of the series rather than the series itself. So like I've seen Goldeneye, and I've seen like yeah. bits from every single James Bond movie beforehand and obviously it's so written in the culture that like you look at a thing and you go oh this is a James Bond parody I remember confusion when this came out because I was like wait isn't there already a Casino Royale movie which is something a lot of people didn't know so there you go you're ahead of the curve yeah, yeah that's things I watched that and obviously like I mean that's Peter Sellers Woody Allen so I think I remember seeing that on TV yeah. and being like what is this <laughs> and then this movie had the same title and I just kind of yeah. got like I've seen a movie called this thing before there's also a TV version of it which was made before the comedy movie yeah I, I'm pretty similar like I grew up they were like like, always on. My family liked them. My mother had a shameful crush on uh, Sean Connery and thinks he cannot be beaten, so she is in the crowd. I was like, oh, Daniel Craig. We'll get to that. I made myself like really get into them after Goldeneye. I don't know what came first, the movie or the game, for me. But yeah, obviously, as a child of a certain age, the N64 game, I was obsessed with it. Uh, I really, really like Goldeneye the movie. It's one of my top three, personally. And I guess I just like sat down and made myself really get into Bond. Like I remember getting this. It was like uh, one of those con subscription magazine things. Like, oh, if you get the first one, you get this like really good free gift and it's super cheap, but then you have to like place a special order with a news agent to keep getting it and I don't know they were like cards and yeah and I, I like watched every single one of them and uh, they get less good <laughs> after Brosnan's like pretty pretty good start then they had to stop making them for a little while <laughs> isn't that the trajectory with most 
Bond movies, though. Or, like, most Bond actors. is like, they start quite strong. I think, like, Connery's the only one who doesn't start with, like, his best movie. Doctor No's pretty good. Yeah, but, like, From Russia With Love is a lot better. Yeah, but it's not that long after or anything. No, no, I mean, that, that was... The, I mean, the reason why there's so many of these damn things is because <laughs> they were damn near yearly for, like, 30 years. Yeah, they were, yeah. The whole point is, you get to the modern era, and then we start moving into, like, modern filmmaking stuff where it's once every two or three years. The first Richard Bond is 62, 63, 64, 65, 67, 69, 71 and that's when yeah. Connery stopped doing and even then they're every two years under Roger Moore yeah they were just banging them out like they were formulaic they were easy and then they started getting a little bit more ambitious with the sort of set pieces and stunts and they started to cost a little bit more money so they did take a little bit longer and then you yeah, had the big gap between Dalton and Brosnan I can't remember the gap between Moore and Dalton but yeah and then you look at now where like the gap between Spectre and No Time to Die is the second longest between Bond films, but uh, after Living Daylights or License to Kill, whichever the second one of Dalton. Yeah, films. like like every single movie is two years apart up and up through Dalton. Then yeah. there's six year gap between License to Kill and Goldeneye. But everything after that's kind of like if you took the average, it probably is kind of like two to three years because yeah. there's like a four year gap between Quantum of Solace and Skyfall. There's this five year gap between Spectre and No yeah. Time to Die. Well, that's more because like it was it should be four years really because yeah. I think No Time to Die was supposed to be out last year, late twenty. Yeah. And I was saying to you last night, it's kind of wild that, like, the shadow of Connery looms over this franchise. He is, like, for most people, he is the Bond. But Daniel Craig has played him for almost, I think, in terms of years, he has played him the longest. Obviously, there are bigger gaps between his films. Uh, oh, no, actually, exactly. Roger Moore might have him by two years, but like, are you including Never Say Never Again in no. like Sean Connery's career? Fun fact: I grew up thinking that was an official real Bond movie and had no clue it was a like semi-spoofy remake of Thunderball. <laughs> no, I'm not including that. But Connery, he makes a lot of them in a very short span of time. So in terms of years, he's actually nowhere near the longest reigning. But then, even with the films, he didn't make as many as people think like roger moore made a crazy number of them and he played him for forever whereas craig is only going to have done five but he's done it over the course of 14 years connery and moore are both at six each craig's at five yeah. now with this one and everyone's like he's done he's not coming back for another one well he keeps saying he's not going back <laughs> i mean <laughs> rather graphically seen... with i'd rather slip my wrists than do another one <laughs> uh, but i've seen people promoting this movie as the last daniel craig bond film and yeah. like i feel like that happened last time but this time it feels so much more i feel like, less the, serious this time yeah and like and it's why everyone's kind of going like oh is rami malik playing dr no is the oh, kind okay. of like one of those things that's floating around in the in the ether interesting right this was released november 2006 so so it's had time to react to the bond supremacy the bond identity not so much mission impossible i don't think i think bond probably i reckon the people over at bond look down on mission impossible even if the mission impossibles get really good so directed by martin Campbell, who was back from Goldeneye. His background before his film career got sad was um, <laughs> lo lots of like British detective shows, so you can kind of see where he would get the itch for that. But he also <laughs> would go on to make The Mask of Zorro and Green Motherfucking Lantern. So it seemed unconventional to me to go back to a director for Bond after a big gap. But then I was looking into this and I realised I don't actually know offhand who directs a lot of these Bond films, so I looked it up. Terence Young did three of the first four 
four. Guy Hamilton did four of them with a seven-year gap between his first and his second. Lewis Gilbert did three with a ten-year gap between his first and his second. And John Glenn did five in a row, which is the most. And he did all of Roger Moore's last ones, and he did both of Dalton's. So there is actually a precedent for bringing yeah, people and it, back. But it did, I, in this era where, like, it's been a different guy every time except for Sam Mendes, it's like, I, it felt strange, but it makes sense because, like, Goldeneye was the last, like, serious-ish one, I, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and, but it's quite interesting because you see there is literally a, a kind of, like, quite clear split between the old Bonds and the new Bonds, and it's why we could have quite easily started with doing the Fraud Bosn Bonds. Because it's like night and day. In the old days, it was like every actor stays around for multiple movies, but the directors also stay. And there's like a kind of like homogeneity to them where like the directors are the same, the writers are the same, the actors are the same. Whereas nowadays, it's like every new Bond movie comes with a new hunt for a director. And apart from, as you say, Campbell and Mendes. And Campbell, what, what makes him so interesting is like his career is so kind of spotty outside of this. <laughs> He's the guy who did Green Lantern and look like they're just these movies that have got like kind of not much personality to them and then you see him do a Bond movie and whilst Goldeneye and Casino Royale are very different movies because like Goldeneye is this kind of huge thing where they're trying to stop a giant satellite from... Yeah, and it does still have an element of camp to it, even if it's more serious than the other Brosnan ones like Boris, like, I am invincible and all that stuff is a bit... and like you know, a woman crushing people to death by fucking them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and then you come to this where it's like well, we're doing the grim gritty origin story story for Bond, where, like, he isn't even a double O in the first scene of the movie. Mm, so good. <laughs> so good. You mentioned the creative team staying the same. Interestingly, Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, they had written every Bond film since The World Is Not Enough, and arguably that's where the Brosnan ones start to go downhill. And they've also written Johnny English, which, you know, say what you want. So it's interesting that they maintained the writing team given Die Another Day was... Well, this is the thing. Die Another Day actually made quite a lot of money, so, like, from an accounting point of view, it's like, oh, cool, good job, keep making them. But then they also acknowledged this film got really bad reviews and everyone hates it, including potentially the writers. Aren't Purvis and Wade still on Bond at this they point? They still though? are to this day, yeah. So I guess they had it in them. They were just making them a bit silly at first. And then Paul Haggis has some writing credit, but by his own admission, he only came in to like change the ending. And he, of course, did Million Dollar Baby and the critically renowned Crash. Everyone's mm. favourite. So this is two hours, 24 minutes. I believe that will make it the longest film we're going to do on this podcast. Don't know about that. You can f- verify that if you want. It is certainly the longest Bond film up until Spectre comes out. Although, fun fact, On Her Majesty's Secret Service... If you take the credits out of both, On Her Majesty's Secret Service is longer. Uh, but credits these days are insane because of how complicated making films is now. This film shot on four different con- countries yeah. and I will actually, those crews get credited. Yeah, I will say, I mean Bond has always been international, like he's an international man of mystery, all of that well, that's Austin Powers, but you know he is a secret agent, he globe trots they're always in lovely exotic locations, but this one feels particularly international because it goes to so many countries in the same film and there are so many ethnicities uh, and languages flying about whereas I feel like it's normally... They might do, like, a cold open in one country, but then most of the film is set in a single location, whereas this... Yeah, they feel the globetrot a lot, and I do actually appreciate that about it. It cost $150 million, though, with adjustment, it's actually... I mean, it was touted as the most expensive Bond film, I think, but with adjustment, it was actually cheaper to make than Die Another Day and World Is Not Enough. 
and I think possibly some of the older ones. And it made $594 million, which officially made it the highest grossing Bond movie, but again, with inflation, it's only like fifth. Like, Goldfinger and Thunderball made over $800 million with, with adjustment, so. As I said, they wanted to reboot Bond after Die Another Day because it's awful. <laughs> Purvis and Wade began writing it in 2004, and they wanted to return to the roots of the novels. Allegedly, Batman Begins and the Bourne franchise had an impact on this because Batman did its big gritty reboot, although they've started writing this a year before. Well, I guess they would have announced Batman Begins before 2005, but yeah. And interestingly, I think the Casino Royale rights are separate to the Bond rights because Ian Fleming sold them before the rest of the Bond franchise, which is why there is that sort of unofficial one from the 60s. MGM didn't have the rights to it. Sony did. So MGM swapped them the rights to Spider-Man in 1999 to get Casino Royale. There was also some kind of lawsuit going on because Sony were going to try and make Casino Royale and maybe they didn't have the full right. I don't know, but they got Spider-Man out of it and then they like to just bought MGM to get them back anyway. So. Yeah, and then and then <laughs> they do the next kind of four James Bond movies, or Sony movies. I don't know if they did Die Another Day as well. Uh, I don't know. They're all, I mean, obviously... they're all Eon Productions, but I don't know who the owner of Eon Productions is. It well, at, the, Sony, at but... the moment it's a licensing deal where Sony releases these movies, which is why this is that movie where like every single product in this movie is a Sony product. <laughs> the Sony VAO laptop. <laughs> the Sony VAO laptop, the Sony Ericsson phone that he keeps on looking at. Um, it's it's genuine. It genu- genuinely gets more distracting than this it's pretty distracting in this movie (laughs) but i think eon signed the new deal where uh universal is the international distributor for bond movies now yeah rather than rather than sony so this is the first and now last (laughs) film since moonraker to be directly based on one of the books and there was of course that non-canon version in the 60s so there is a sort of i will call it an almost legendary piece of trivia about this movie in that quentin tarantino claims credit for them making it because he was allegedly in serious talks to direct a entirely black and white film with pierce brosnan in the 60s set directly after on her majesty's secret service which would have featured narration of lines from the actual book and he wanted Samuel L. Jackson as Felix Leiter and Uma Thurman as Vesper. I don't have words but allegedly they never seriously considered him but it depends who you ask is what I've read. But that would have certainly been a thing, wouldn't it? I mean, I mean this is the same <laughs> thing as him in discussions to do Star Trek at the moment. But that seems more credible to me. I don't know. But him being I, like, I oh, I'm the reason they even made that movie. It's like, okay, calm the fuck down. <laughs> so speaking of Pierce Brosnan, who he wanted to retain, they looked at 200 actors to replace him as James Bond, including Carl Urban, Sam Worthington, Grace Scott, Gerard Butler, all sorts of people. According to Campbell, the only serious other contender was Henry Cavill, who was considered a little bit too young. I think he was 20-fucking-two at the time, which is insane. Jesus. And he is still a heavy favourite to replace Daniel Craig alongside names like Idris Elba, and I don't know if I like the Tom Hiddleston angle, but my support would be for Chris Hemsworth, but who knows. It would be insane if, if, if Cavill did come... I mean, normally they go for someone who's a little bit more unknown, mm. and at this point Cavill has done the spy movie movie in Man From Uncle. Yeah. He's done Superman at this point, yeah. and he's also been in like the other one of the other big competitors to the throne for spy movies in Fallout. And he's the Witcher. So. And he's the Witcher at this point. <laughs> he is Gerald. He is, he is Gerald. But of course, Daniel Craig, Layer Cake, that 
pretty much sealed the deal for him. He was the first choice. He did actually dismiss the idea of playing Bond a year before he was cast because he was like, they've gotten shit, basically. <laughs> and then he read a script and he was like, oh, okay, I'll do this. And he read all the books and he put on 20 pounds of muscle and he stopped smoking and yeah. But it was met with some controversy. He's blonde, oh no. I know. Well, the perception is... One, he's blonde, which apparently is no mortal sin. Two, he was not considered good-looking or charismatic enough. Like, I think they started calling him James Bland. But he is an incredible actor. He has such a physicality to him, despite being shorter than all the other Bonds. He is just a big old beefcake. And, you know, when you see him naked and walking out of the water, it's like, I'm sorry, is this man not sexy enough for you? I'm, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> People say that this movie is not hot. This is the sexiest James Bond movie that's ever been put to the screen. It's so horny. <laughs> it's so horny. So sexy. And it's just like, so you're telling me that a cast that includes Daniel Craig stripped down to, like, little tiny swim shorts, mm. Eva Green, Mads Mikkelsen, Jeffrey Wright is not... <laughs> Sexy Mads just admire oh, you've taken good sexy, care like, of your body. Sexy Mads <laughs> getting out of that car in that like opening fucking scene with him in, and it's just like, oh no, he's like so hot. And the torture scene where they're both just so sweaty, and, it's, and he's just admiring his body, and like, mmm. It's like, are you gonna fuck him? Yeah, <laughs> I was. I was generally just like, I don't know which scene is hotter in this movie. Is it the scene where he is whipping a naked Daniel Craig, or is it the scene where he's talking about like her hearing what his little finger can do? I, I know James Bond is known for kind of being sexy, but like when you come from the last movie being Pierce Brosnan and Halle Berry doing this kind of like cheesy one-liner thing, <laughs> and Christmas like, Jones. I thought yeah, Christmas only came once a year. Exactly, and then you come into this movie, and it feels like. There's an actual chemistry between Daniel Craig and Eva Green. Yeah. And it feels like at any second they're about to rip each other's clothes off and just fuck on camera. Yeah, I feel like a lot of them, it's all very, like... I mean, the British reputation is we don't like talking about sex, and it's all very innuendo and <laughs> wink, wink, nudge, nudge, and, like, we'll make the overtures, but we're actually scared of having it. Whereas it's like, Daniel Craig will fuck you. Like, he will actually fuck you. So our agent is James Bond. Everyone knows who James Bond is. He is a womanising dinosaur. He is a, a an international spy... It's one-liners, it's blowing stuff up, it's gadgets, all of that. But our mission statement here with Bond is they wanted to do a younger Bond, a more vulnerable Bond, a more naive Bond, and I think they succeeded in that. Um, and that's why they went and got Daniel Craig. Like, they wanted someone... I think he was the youngest Bond at this point. And they will spend several films evolving him into a more classic Bond, but he's not... He has his flirty banter, but he's not really delivering one-liners or anything. And, like... He is not a scalpel at this point. He is... A blunt instrument. <laughs> he's a machete. And it's just kind of, like, hacking at stuff. And what I think is most interesting about this series is they never really get to him... Because what you get is you get this movie, Quantum of Souls takes place immediately afterwards in possibly one of that movie's biggest flaws. And then you get to Skyfall, which opens with him being shot, falling off a, falling off a bridge and then retiring. He loves like, to retire. <laughs> yeah, but like the thing is, you don't actually get a movie which is kind of like peak 007 just doing a mission because the franchise kind of makes a mistake of kind of going back and forth on like how they want to structure it. And so it's interesting that he's never actually played like pure Bond. Yeah. Really. He is, you know, he makes mistakes and arguably he fails every objective in this movie. So, <laughs> you know, he makes his mistakes. I mean, he says all the stuff about, oh, you're not my type, you're single and all of that. But like, <laughs> he even then he is portrayed as a little bit less of a lady killer than like classic Bond. And yeah, it's... 
It's interesting. And like, I can see why some people who had never seen Daniel Craig before would be like, who is this guy? He's not Bond. But like, I think he has totally silenced all those critics over the last 14 years. Like, I don't know if there are still people who are like, he's not Bond, but he's owned it. He's made it his own. I think, you know, you can debate whether he or Sean Connery is a better actor, but I think he is acting harder in Bond than Sean Connery did in Bond. And he, I think he's, he's won BAFTAs, which I guess none of the other Bonds did. So as a, I mean, for his work in a Bond. So our mission, brand new 00, James Bond, is tasked with bankrupting terrorist financer Le Chiffre at a high-stakes poker game at the Casino Royale in Montenegro, because MI6 hope that if he is bankrupted, he will seek asylum in Britain in exchange for information about his clients. If you'd asked me about an hour into the movie what the mission was, I wouldn't have been able to tell you that, but that's something for us to discuss as we get going, I guess. I think, so this movie came out 2006. I'm 14 years old. It's yeah. the first James Bond movie I go to see in the cinemas. Yeah. I couldn't have recited to you the plot of this movie at that age because I'm not. Yeah. I've got no idea what shorting stocks is. And <laughs> it's another banger about stock options <laughs> after Mission Impossible 2. But like, maybe that's I, the I, legacy of Mission Impossible 2 on this franchise. Yeah, I remember seeing this in the cinema and thinking, "Wow, this is great." Yeah. But like every single time, I was like, "I don't actually understand any of the kind of plot machinations in the last 30 minute chunk of this movie." Yeah, <laughs> like like it all tracks on like an emotional level up until yeah. the kind the scene where they get kidnapped and then afterwards it's just kind of like oh we're doing lots of double twists now but I'm not actually sure any of the words you're saying makes sense. So and... I will phrase that even less kindly. I think it's bad after the torture scene personally. And Benjamin and I have been arguing for the last sort of 24 hours about this movie. I think I think Martin Campbell directs the ever loving fuck out of a lot of key scenes, but I don't think the script is strong and cohesive in a way that I think Skyfall is. Now, I haven't seen Skyfall in three or four years, so maybe we'll get to it and I will agree with your assessments of it that, like, you don't like when it turns into Home Alone, basically. I, I enjoy when it turns into Home Alone, but it feels like, it feels like in The Last Jedi when they finally get to Crate in that last half hour of the movie, uh-huh. it feels like they've started a whole other movie. Yeah, you're emotionally but, spent. Yeah, like, like the movie climbs Max's like the stuff on the subway and the and the train car and stuff like that. It feels like the movie concludes and then we're up to Scotland for the bit where Sean Connery was supposed to show up. Oh, uh, <laughs> oh goodness. But this movie, I feel like, whilst the weakest part of this movie is the part where they start building a mythos and start building a connective tissue to the movies, it doesn't trip this movie up. I mean, the two movies that are the best in this in this kind of, like, little four-movie series are the two that are like, let's just tell an independent story. Yeah. And then Quantum of Solace and Spectre trip over themselves trying to go, like, and what if we connect all the dots? See, and- I like, in theory, the idea of... Because Bond doesn't do a lot of continuity. Like, there are characters that recur, and, like, Spectre and Blofeld were recurring villains but generally it's almost as if none of them are canon because it's like there's no way one guy could do all 20 of these missions or whatever it was at the time it's it, almost like tv where like the yeah. next episodes you you resolve a cliffhanger maybe or you resolve like yeah. something that maybe happened at the end of the last one like when he gets married the next movie goes like yeah and then she dies yeah like immediately and like i keep joking about it but he has retired like three or four times and been brought back for one last mission and everything but like i do actually kind of like that they may 
made an attempt to be like, right, all of Daniel Craig's Bond films are actually connected and plot details will carry over. It's just the execution doesn't work. And yeah, I just think throughout there's some kind of weak connective tissue between these like really, really good scenes. It reminds me of Mission Impossible 1, but it's better than Mission Impossible 1, obviously. But it's like, here's this really cool scene and now I'm not quite sure how we've gotten here, but this is cool and now this is happening. And I think we'll have a more interesting discussion when we get to Skyfall, but let's just take this movie as it is. So it opens with, for my money, the dopest scene, opening scene in a Bond movie, all in black and white. Bond, not yet a double O, kills the corrupt section chief Dryden and earns his double O rank by making his second official kill. Just holy fuck what a difference taking yourself seriously makes. The choice to shoot this in black and white, the choice to do these flashbacks, yeah, and it's just so stylish. Like, the dialogue is like a play, it's like a classic black and white spy movie. It's just really, really, really good. It's really good. It's that first kind of, like, the brutal fight scene. What I appreciate about this is it kind of takes the Bourne and the Mission Impossible kind of stuff, where it's grim and gritty, uh, like the Bourne movies are, where kind of, like, punch it, you feel the punches, and it's kind of shot in that way, where it's low down, it's kind of feisty. But it takes the set pieces that Mission Impossible's kind of been building and are part of James Bond's forte and kind of meshes them together Mm. into this kind of, like, really fun thing. Because I feel like Bourne doesn't do set pieces in the same way. Ball movies are slight. <laughs> Nothing much is what? like at stake in a ball movie other than this guy's got an identity or there's some agents that might get killed. Yeah. And whilst this movie doesn't have that high stakes, it still is playing with things that are like someone's gonna blow up a plane and we're in a post 9-11 world. That means something. It's got some high stakes poker though. Uh, also nice some uh, some speculation made about 9-11 in this film. Quite a bold <laughs> thing to do. I really like when he's like, well, you're second, and then he interrupts him and kills him and goes, yes, considerably. Yeah. You know, that the, the dialogue that is left off the page. I adore it's, this It's opening. really good. I watched it yeah. again as soon as the movie was over, just to be like, well, I found the last half hour a little bit depressing. I want to watch that scene again. <laughs> I like that they tie it in with the classic, the gun turn and shooting at the camera, making it like, this is him killing his first person. Uh, and and it, it takes us into our opening titles. I don't I, think I they've ever love... made one of those canon to... Like, it's always just been a stylistic flair before the credits until this, I think. Uh, but it's actually, like, part of the plot here. But, yeah. Yeah. I also love the bit where he's like, oh, I would know if anyone got promoted to double O status. Yeah, exactly. It's like, I haven't yet. <laughs> I haven't yet. But yeah. this this will confirm my guilt. It's just... It's a really good scene. Yeah. And I then also, we come in... I also think to... the kind of two men alone in a room aspect and one of them was there already. I mean, our entire mission statement for this podcast is to compare these two franchises, so I am going to clutch at straws a little bit, but it feels a little bit Bourne-ish, where Bourne is waiting for someone in the hotel room with a tape recorder, for instance. You know, it's its own thing, and it's very, very good, and it's probably better than it is in Bourne. I mean, it, no, it is better than it is in Bourne, but, like, if we're going to try and identify some stuff that is reacting, I think that maybe would be an instance, but, yeah, we're going to talk about the theme song at the end, by the by, but, yeah, the opening credits, uh, the opening title sequence, no naked dancing ladies so a big win for feminism from bond (laughs) i'm gonna jump about a bit here to tie things together better but like sometime later bond is chasing down a bomb maker in madagascar and he chases him to an embassy (laughs) where he kills him on camera and escapes with his bag finding
opening clues about something called ellipsis. So I like they do this in movies where like you demonstrate why someone is better than someone else. Like the whole put your bloody hand down because the guy keeps touching his earpiece while they're trying to like do surveillance on this terrorist man at the like snake mongoose fight that's happening in in Madagascar. And then they have this lengthy chase that is just electric. They hire like the free running dude to do all this parkour and Bond just can't do it. And it's like, (laughs) yeah, he makes this really smooth sequence of jumps and then Bond throws himself after some hesitation, barely lands and has to pull himself up. He's like running through walls that the guy's like jumping through the hatch on and like, it's kind of comical and I don't know if they meant it to be, but it's great. No, yeah, I think think it's just this comparison of these two styles of guy and it's like, it's, it's this incredibly like perceptive thing that they do because parkour is the hot thing in 2006. I remember everyone <laughs> at school kind of like pretend, jumping off of like buildings and stuff like that because they're all idiots. Yeah. Um, and going like, I can parkour. And then this movie's just like, yeah, you know what? We're going to hire the world like free running guy. The guy that founded free running as a, as a concept, <laughs> yes, as a subset of parkour. Yeah. <laughs> and then we're going to have him be the, the stunt guy in this first scene. And we're going to compare him to just this guy who isn't that. He's, he's yeah. muscle. He's strength. He's, yeah. I do, I do like that Craig brings out this sort of raw physicality that none of the other Bonds seem to have. Like, he's fucking huge, and all of the fight scenes for him are like, they have this level of kind of brutality, while staying within, like, a sensible age rating. <laughs> um, but, like, just stuff like him throwing his gun at him when it's out of ammo or whatever, or it jams or whatever it is, and, like, yeah, just being this big hulking presence. You go from Bourne, where his powers are, like, superhuman, or from, like, Mission Impossible, where his fighting style changes depending on what the movie needs him to be doing. Backflip kicks. Uh, backflip <laughs> kicks and whatnot. And you go to this, and it's like, no, this this feels like someone who probably went to, like, Eton, who yeah. <laughs> graduated up to be a spy and into the SAS and stuff like that, who's good enough at what he does, yeah. but isn't going to be, like, quiet. And I also kind of like, it is refreshing that this dude does just outmaneuver him, basically. I mean, he ends up... If it weren't for that fact that Bond was willing to do something highly illegal by jumping in over the fence of the embassy and killing him anyway, like, he gets away. And, like, he eludes him, and it's kind of refreshing. And I guess it is going with their thing of, like, he is new at this, and, like, maybe in five years he catches the guy early or whatever. Or maybe it's just like, hey, look, he isn't Superman. He will get his man in the end, but, like, he can't do this. The sort of extremity of him having a bag over the guy's head with a gun to the back of his head at this embassy surrounded by guns threatening an execution and like only grumpily handing him back over. It's like, whoa. (laughs) And then he kills him anyway, just pulls a different gun and gets away. It's like, this is kind of wild. And like, he does it all on camera and it's like, how would the British government get out of this? This is incredibly illegal (laughs) to kill someone in an embassy like that. But But I like that the movie doesn't care. It's just like, yeah, but that's for the bureaucracy and stuff like that like Judy Dench has one conversation with them is just like oh fuck (laughs) fuck those prigs Um, but also Bond you're fucking done and meanwhile he's broken into her house hacked into her computer found the location from where this text message was sent and then it's just like yeah I'm off I'm going I'm going to continue this mission because I'm going to take out bomb uh, bomb makers and we're getting into like really dubious territory about like a single man taking international works into his own hands to like stop terrorism but as a movie it's kind of fun yeah like, it is if, if this if this 
happened in real life, yeah. I'd be like, what the fuck are we doing? Why on earth, why on earth is this Oxford graduate? <laughs> and like... yet it's still one of the most realistic ones. <laughs> Do you think he deliberately left the laptop slightly open so she would know why he was there? I assume so. Yeah. I assume it's one of those things where, like, I, it, I, one of those things that they do actually really, they really nail on these movies is the relationship between Craig and Dench. Yeah, yeah. I love how frustrated by him she is and, like, how the bloody hell did you find my house? Same way I found your name. I thought M was just a randomly assigned thing. I didn't realize it standard for, and then she's like, if you say one more syllable, I'll have you kill. And you said about, like, her dealing with the bureaucrats. I like her line of, like, even the prime minister has the good sense to not ask what we do here and stuff like that. It's all good stuff. We kind of meet Le Chiffre at different points around that scene here, and I yeah, sort like, of wanted like he, to package he, he, he them takes, together. He takes money from, like, some, some African terrorist organization, or, not, like... Not Coney. Not Coney. <laughs> uh, and then he's playing poker on his ship. Yeah. With... Uh, who's, who is he's playing poker with? Is it not Demetrios? Is it Demetrios? Yeah. And, yeah. and I think also, um, oh, what's she called? I'm going to be racist by saying that. Is it, the lady that is at the game at the end, the Asian lady, she she was in You Only Live Twice. And okay. I, I believe she's in on the boat as well. But Yeah, because I, I know they're just like, because uh, he gets the bad news that yeah. like the terrorist has been killed with yeah. the bomb. Yeah. And he's like, get, yeah. get, get, he get is, off the boat. The next five minutes, I'll throw them overboard. Yeah, he is involved with this ellipsis thing. It's difficult to say what he does. He he provides financial services to terrorists, basically. And he's a big numbers guy. He plays the odds. He's a chess master. He has a scar over his eye, a weepy, a blood weeping tear duct. He has an inhaler. It's all very classic Bond villain. Mads is... Oh, Mads is great. Mads, Mads is, is, Mads so is Mads. You don't need to ever describe Mads' performance. I don't think I've ever seen him be bad in anything. Is this his first English language performance? Really done something before this? Oof, I really don't know. I'm afraid. <laughs> you uh, oh, he's in. Me. He's in King Arthur oh. a couple of years before this. But like, this feels like an announcement of oh, an yeah. actor to it, be to be paying attention it's to. It's Mads fucking Middle uh, Mickelson. Yeah, yeah. He's so good that he's good in Death Stranding, which is just. <laughs> garbage. If you look at who follows him as Bond villains, it kind of feels like they go and get a big name actor who is coming off another big performance or whatever, whereas Mads, it's like, we've found Mads. We have just made Mads essentially. Yeah, like, um, like at, le- at least two non-English speaking oh, or yeah. to, to English speaking countries. Because yeah. obviously like, he's done things like he's been in Open Hearts with Susan Beer. He, yeah. he, he is known in... It's like Christoph Waltz in Inglourious Bastards. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Like It's someone who has a career of in their native country, but yeah. then you're premiering them to a world stage and it's one of those things where I'm genuinely shocked that like he didn't get an Oscar nomination or something like that for this movie. I feel he probably would have done if it had come out now. I feel well, the that's, Academy that's, started looking differently at supporting actor roles, probably because of Heath Ledger. Yeah, but yeah. If you, because you look at it and they do kind of, they start chasing Oscar winners after this. Like, Matthew Almerich is kind of like the outlier here, but then when you get Javier Bardem, Christoph Waltz, and Rami Malek, all mm. kind of non, non English or American, European feeling kind of villains yeah. is what they kind of start going for. But all three of those are Oscar winners. Yeah. <laughs> He's got these ties with this African militia. It'll come up again in an hour or so, but for now, I think I think more could have been done with Le Chiff in the first hour than is. I think the, the main issue with it is, is they're kind of... They're devoting they're hint- so much time to, like, let's establish early Bond before well, we get into the Bond movie we're making. Sure, there's that, but I don't I don't mind that. I think the main issue with Le Chiff is that, like, they introduce kind of, like, three different factions that exist around Le Chiff. Yeah. So it's like, there is what we will eventually find 
find out is Quantum, okay, which fine. we then find out is eventually Spectre. Because of copyright. Kind of like circling around this stuff, which yeah. is who Mr. White works for and who yeah. introduces Le Chief to this and Le Chief takes the money and then he finds people with a bomb and then he shorts the stock against the terrorist organization to get them more money, but he's actually losing money. I think like the entire thing is like he is gambling with the world's biggest terrorists' money. Yeah, so Bond follows this lead to the Bahamas, uh, the Ocean Club, using the phone and like matching up the key dates with the security footage, which feels kind of Bourne-ish, but also a little bit Mission Impossible-y, I guess. Like, um, it, it, it's, got, it's got the feel of like, it understands modern technology like Bourne does, but with the kind of like, very silly like, oh, the one camera he looks at is like yeah, exactly yeah. the location of like where <laughs> this guy was sending a phone. It's like, yeah, there's no way a phone would be able to pinpoint exactly where a text message was sent from. That's not how yeah. any of this works. No. I do like him being mistaken for the valet and then crashing the dude's car without missing a beat. Like, certainly, sir. Sorry, sir. And all that. And then just smashes his car. And yes, inside. and it's all because he's looking at the cameras, he's getting a feel for the place, and then someone comes along and sees guy in white polo shirt and tra- he's like, oh, this must be the valet. Yeah. Because that not, that's not his intention of getting to the building. His yeah. intention of getting to the building is probably something completely else. But he's just like, all right, I could do this. Yeah, and it serves as a distraction as well because security have to run outside. So that lets him identify Demetrios, who is one of Le Chiffre's middlemen or, or whatever. So then he's like stalking him a bit, makes eyes at his wife. We get the much-touted inverted Ursula Andrus scene where he comes out of the water. He's a big, strong boy. This was entirely an accident. Daniel Craig accidentally swam into some too shallow water and had to stand up. He was scripted to like just swim away and he had to stand up and they were like, oh, this works. Let's film this. And this was allegedly a lot of people when they saw these photos get out ahead of time were like, oh, okay, maybe he can be Bond. It's like, oh, for fuck's sake. I, Go I, watch Layer Cake. <laughs> the, thing that, the thing that's supposed to be, like, what thing I'm going to give this movie credit for is this movie is not afraid of kind of, like, male sensuality or, like, sexuality. Yeah. Let's, let's make Bond the sex object. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, there's not that many scenes. Like, yes, Eva Green wearing, like, kind of these low neckline dresses and she looks fabulous but like mm. we'll have some th- things to say about Eva Green <laughs> th- but there's not that much kind of like objectification of her yeah it's not as gratuitous a- as a lot of the Bond films have been about women yeah and it's definitely not as gratuitous as it is kind of with Daniel Craig and it's like it's yeah. interesting for a movie which is for the most part being shot by like I well, assume at this point like straight white men mm-hmm. this movie is using Bond as a sex symbol and uh, it's really interesting and it's not to say that Bond isn't previously been a sex symbol but in this he feels very sexy yeah and we're here for it we're all here for it we're all having a good time he uses M's username and password again does he know that they can see what he's doing or is he just being naive because uh, they're like oh now he's looking at this like they can see in real time what he's looking at and everything and M gets the phone call in the middle of the night and everything's like oh M has a husband who is this person <laughs> yeah interesting he makes contact with Demetrius he wins his Aston Martin in a poker game almost sleeps with his wife tails him to a museum stabs him to death uses his phone to thwart a plot to blow up a prototype jet and that costs Le Chiff 101 million dollars all a bit wishy-washy in terms of what's going on right now but there's some great stuff happening in the meantime here like I just want to ask now because I mean the poker will be a bigger thing later but this is our first poker bit is this film responsible for Texas Hold'em becoming so enormous 
in the 2000s? Or did they ride an already increasing wave of popularity and put it into the film? Because it's, I think it's Baccarat in original Casino Royale, not Texas Hold'em. I distinctly remember everyone was playing Texas Hold'em after this movie. And it's like, was the movie responsible or was Texas Hold'em already becoming popular? I, I think probably because like this is the era of like televised poker tournaments and Texas yeah. Hold'em is what they play mostly. That is kind of like yeah. these two things kind of coming up and you start seeing these interesting people sat around the table and you get it in this movie with like the the, the, the various personalities sat around the table in, in Montenegro where it feels like it's playing more off that televised poker feel yeah. more than the kind of classic yeah Pendulette doing the commentary I had dipshit friends who at like the age of I don't know 17 were doing tuxedo and cigars poker parties and it's like okay you're trying to be Bond that's very cute I mean I'm sure I'm sure for a generation <laughs> of younger people but I because I, I do feel like it's one of those things where because even I, I I've played a bit of poker I've not played a lot of poker but I can still look at the hands and go like okay that's that's why they've mm. won I understand that now but when it was 2006 I was like I've got no idea they're just telling me which hand wins and which yeah, one doesn't yeah that's a lot of poker to be honest <laughs> I just play a lot of poker but yeah it's it's yeah it's interesting I love this as a piece of mythology him winning the Aston Martin and like that's the genesis of him having these Aston Martins um, and like throughout this is for me the strongest part of the Daniel Craig Bond is like treating Bond as a mythological figure almost and establishing like this is where this came from this is the origin of this and like we'll talk about it more in Skyfall when he wins it and then Demetrius's wife goes to get in and it's him in there and he drives her around the driveway because he's staying at the club and then almost banging her and then ordering her champagne and caviar and then just taking off it's like okay um, and then going to Miami <laughs> Going to Miami. Which yes. I think, like, this this is where the movie kind of gets a bit confusing. I understand yeah. what you're talking about here. Is that, like, they don't... The whole movie's kind of be doing these bits where it's like, here's where we are in the world. You kind of make sense of it. The only place yeah. they don't really do is, like, we're in London, England. They don't... <laughs> they just show you a shot of Parliament. Yeah, yeah. For Miami, it's not even, like, they don't really set you the fact that, like, he's gone from the Bahamas to so Miami, he, Florida. So he's, he must have boarded the same flight or a different one or, or at the same time. And then he's tailing him in a cab to this museum. And it's like, what was there a seat? available last minute on this flight who yeah. knows but you um, cut from like one second he's driving the Aston Martin to the next he's in a taxi cab and it really is kind of that quick and I understand it's filmic language and it yeah. gets across what it needs to just about yeah like you get but the it, broad strokes like he's following this man now he has to follow this man but you're not entirely sure what's about to go down and like they do this John Wick-esque public murder where he stabs him in front of people and then just puts him in a seat and there's like someone looking right at him and it's like uh, okay and then he just starts following this other dude I think he's called Carlos we're not entirely sure what he's doing he follows him to the airport he like calls M and then hangs up on her immediately just continuing this like for god's sake Bond thing and then it's like what's he doing like you see it's like okay he's probably gonna blow up the plane but then they do so much driving in the other direction and it all just feels a little bit like that they could have achieved they could have done this in a more like succinct way and like it's all fun like him transferring the bomb to this dude's like back pocket instead of the car and, and all of that but it's just I don't know I think this is a wishy-washy stretch of the movie I think it tracks I think it pays off the stuff but I just think it's one of those confusing things uh, the most confusing thing about, thing about it is the kind of needless we're going to go from one country to another country yeah. at this kind of like very short notice yeah. like obviously I understand it needs to be in America but it's like well I understand they're in the Bahamas the Bahamas aren't that far from Miami yeah, yeah, but it's like I just feel it does a lot of hey, just stick with us. It might not make sense for a bit, but it will in a minute. And 
there's nothing wrong with doing that, but I, I think it could have been a little bit snappier or a little bit more focused, but hey, I'm still having fun. So M then briefs Bond on Le Chiffre and gets him this seat at the high stakes poker game at the Casino Royale because now Le Chiffre's lost his 100 million, he's got no money, and they're like, I don't think he's got 100 million to lose, so he's gonna use this poker game to get his money back. So if you just go in and make sure he doesn't win, he's fucked. And it's like, that's a quite assuming mission, but, and then Vesper Lynn is tasked with she's like a treasury agent she gives him the money to get in and she's supervising his use of it and posing as his wife and this is all fun Demetrius's wife is tortured and murdered not great our villain exposition comes one hour in which again like I like all of the like let's establish Bond stuff but it's just I feel we've seen Lishif a couple of times three times now and we're only just getting our like this is who he is this is what he does and I think you're right that it is more that like it's not just that there's Le Chiff, it's that there's the there's the militia, there's the poker crew, there's Demetrios, there's Carlos, and it's like it's not entirely clear how it all is tying together without that. Like... Yeah, they're being purposely vague because they keep on talking about an organization that exists above them, and yeah, which when they don't just... have the rights to yet, yeah. so they can't name. <laughs> yeah, and when you're when you're focusing on just the stuff that kind of Le Chiff is doing and his relationship, like if you ignore all the stuff that's going on above them, and it's just kind of like Le Chiff is paying to set a bomb up with money that he got from these uh, these terrorists, which I don't know why they want to blow up the plane other than it gets them more money if the shorts are stocked. I understand what the sheep is doing. I just don't understand whether or not that's the plan of this militia. I think they were just like, okay, here's the money. You're going to give it back in a bit, right? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll deal with that. And then this is how he planned to do it. I don't think they had any clue he was going to do that. So it's more like he is trying to make the money back, but he's lost presumably on other schemes like this. Yes, I feel he does this with a lot of different clients. I also really like this idea that, like, by the way, if you lose, the Crown has directly funded terrorism. <laughs> it's like, okay, that's good. Is this the last movie that can kind of get away with going, like, $150 million? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. As, like, a significant sum of money. It's yeah. it's kind of hilarious to go now when you kind of sat there going, like, yeah, but Jeff Bezos is sat on, like, literal billions. Yeah, it's like, the producers of this movie are sitting on more money than that. Like, <laughs> This movie costs the same amount of money that rides on this Okay, well, I understand that's a high-paying poke game. But when you're talking terrorist organizations and stock shortings, it's just quite interesting that, like, especially when you think on, like, Austin Powers, and Austin Powers makes the joke of him yeah. going, like, I want a million dollars. Like, it's not a lot of money nowadays. <laughs> then he's like, 100 billion dollars. Yes, good, good. We'll be doing Austin Powers at the end, don't worry. <laughs> Vesper and Bond meet. Sherlock, this is not as they take turns to do the, like, hyper-quick analysation of each other. And they just about get away with this, because he is basically mansplaining poker to her, and her own personality, and basically going, you've got daddy issues, and she does it back to him, which is how I feel they just about get away with it. And I feel she comes out on top of that interaction, because he said all of his stuff, and he's like, aha. And then she does it back, and he has no comeback. And she's like, oh, I'm right then, cool. And I feel I, they'll well, toe I... this line throughout where, like, there is some iffy treatment towards Vespa, but then she dishes it back for the most part. So I feel they just about get away with it. And, like, let's be clear, for Bond, this is, like, woke as fuck but it's still not great. <laughs> but they have a fun chemistry, these two, and she is a... I feel she's kind of a different sort of actress than they normally go for. 
And she's very well played. Like, Eva Green's great in this, I think. Eva Green's so good. Yeah. She's like a bolt of fr- like lightning into this movie when she shows yeah. up. Because they have immediate chemistry. And yeah. it's so good. And I love that they don't fully confirm whether or not they're both right. I think they both react yeah. in some ways to certain things. Do we... Do we so, spoilers for Skyfall. We find out that Bond's parents die. Mm-hmm. Are we assuming that like they died when he was quite young? I forget if... Yeah. I think so, that- yeah. I think everything she said is right. I think he did go to Oxford. I think... That's in one of the others. I don't know. I don't remember. But yeah, they have great chemistry. And like, it's a lot like Born Identity where it's not as pronounced, but like adding this female presence makes it more interesting. And like, they have this great chemistry. And I think these two have more chemistry even than, than Matt Damon and uh, Franca Potenza did. But... Oh, I, like by far. Like, <coughs> it's, in, it's insane to go from like, because Matt Damon, the, the things that Matt Damon as Born are trying to do are so fundamentally not focused on his relationship with women it's more like he finds this person who he can kind of like lean on and help him through his memory loss and stuff like that and someone who he can relate to i would say he is like genuinely fully in love with marie and like that's his forever person whereas bond is just a big flirty bastard <laughs> okay sure 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 <laughs> but then it's also in comparison but, to tom cruise and yeah. the women who we've seen him interact with so far and michelle monaghan is the only person who's got like close to this chemistry with tom cruise and even then it's night and day night and day a fine fine Tom Cruise movie and then they have this little repartee of like you're not my type smart no single and it's like ah well just you wait for an hour's time Mr. Bond I like that he refuses the cover story immediately on the grounds that Le Chiffre is well connected enough to have seen through it he knows who I am and he still invited me and that's interesting because they've got this like we're a married couple my name is something beach mr beach yeah something yeah and he's just like yeah bond but it's under the name of beach it's like oh okay then (laughs) i like them each choosing the other's outfit like he puts on the iconic dinner jacket and it's like she got this for him and he's like i've already got one it's like well there are dinner jackets and dinner jackets and like again like it's just the right side of misogynistic because it's like he's like yes you have to wear this like low plunging dress because everyone has to be looking at you when you come into the room and then he walks off and then if they'd left it there, I'd be like, mm, not a fan. But then he storms back in, like, what the hell is this? And, like, she's, like, doing the mocking of him when he's, like, looking at himself in the mirror and everything. So it's like, Vespa gives it back is the, is the saving grace, I would say. So they start playing poker, and they play poker for, like, two straight days or evenings. And after four hours, they take a break, during which Le Chiffre is, like, accosted by this militia crew that he promised money to earlier. And Bond ends up tangled in it and has to kill their leader and, and all sorts but like my first question is do you think games like this actually happen in real life 10 million dollar buy-ins to giant fucking two-day poker games with like two hundred thousand dollar blinds and stuff yes, like absolutely that? this happens okay <laughs> distressingly frequently uh, we're all so poor like this happens this happens in like las vegas like you can yeah. find a casino where like they'll invite you into like the special room which yeah. is like it spent too much money there but like, i meant more this kind of like grand international one person from every country like huge fancy hotel i mean i mean maybe maybe not this kind of like it feels almost public what they're doing but i can imagine i can almost definitely imagine a poker game where elon musk shows up throws throws a hundred million dollars on the table and then bets it all off and then just goes back and says like well i'm gonna make money selling five more cars tomorrow what do i care i don't want to 
to talk about Elon Musk. So Vespa does her entrance. Comes in from the wrong angle so no one actually has to see her. It struck me as like, what, is she now just being left in the creche with the other women and like non-consequential people like over at the side? Like it all just felt very... Is she just hanging out? I think think she is. She's hanging out drinking booze, which I presume is free because there's so much fucking money in that room. Also, the creche is where like the worst dialogue in the movie comes from. It's Mathis Mm -hmm. explaining poker hands and tells. It's just like... No, no, no. Worse than that. (laughs) Explaining how much money is in the pot when they're talking in English, she's right next to you and she's a fucking accountant for the treasury. Go it's, fuck yourself. It's, it's so obviously, like, dialogue aimed at the audience. It's like, oh, look, Le Chief is doing his tell right now. And it's like, what? Like, yeah. The movie has signposted this. As, did, was this, like, in test screenings? Someone turned around and was just like, yeah. I don't understand the rules of poker and what's yeah. happening. Yeah, and, like, they go to all these depths of, like, babying the audience, quite frankly, with, like, what bluffing is and what tells are and all of this. But then they never make any attempt to explain things like blinds, which most people don't know what they are. And it's like, okay, but I think it all still works. The sort of spoon feeding of like, ah, oh, his tell. Like, that's all shit. But like, if you just look at the raw, like, footage of Mads and Craig opposite each other, playing poker, it all still works. Like, the language of film, where like, yeah, I think I've said this on one of our podcasts before. I was told in film school, if your film doesn't work without the dialogue, you failed in terms of direct you should be able to deliver the intent of a scene purely through your direction and like how you shoot it and stuff. Yeah, and even I think if all you of don't, that works. Yeah, even if you don't know what the plot is, yeah. if you can't tell like who's winning this or like where the where the conflict is, who's winning, who's losing, yeah. then you failed. Yeah. Really. Yeah. And it's one of those things where like someone said this, like literally the Christopher McCrory was saying on Twitter yesterday where he was sat there going, like, the scene in Mission Impossible One set in the restaurant, like if you watch that scene with the dialogue turned off, it still works. Yeah. Like the way of it, the way it's shot, the way it's kind of like angled and stuff like that, you can tell exactly what's happening in that scene, even if you don't understand the mechanics of like, well, he's been found out, he's been accused of being a spy, all these different things. We just want to skip over the poker. <laughs> I think the poker stuff is good, but oh, yeah, stuff, it's kind of like... fantastic. It's like, they play three hands of poker? Really? Yeah, they do. But it's like, you know, it lasts two days, they have multiple breaks, it's all very like, ah... <laughs> like, it's floaty a bit, but I like his like, complicated drink order that's directly from Casino Royale book, instead of the vodka martini which will of course become later on when he orders another one he's like, <laughs> do i look like i give a damn exactly yeah that's already good and like everyone be like yeah i'll have one of those like, yeah, yeah, yeah i'll have one too and mad's just been like oh, are we gonna play some fucking points? yeah but for fuck's sake don't get seven of these drinks yeah yeah the whole the shift being threatened by the militia thing like this is all a bit like eh. i do like that they see through the kissing ploy because he's got an earpiece in so it's like yeah you can make out and like pretend you're just a bystanding couple but i see that earpiece Sun. Yeah, you're, you're angled the wrong way. <laughs> if you did it the opposite side of the hallway, it would have been yeah, would have been saved. But I love how this scene kind of plays out because Bond kills both of these militia guys, yeah. and then the movie becomes this short little PTSD mm-hmm. kind of thing where Vesper Lind is like sat in the shower, yeah. like fully clothed and just credit like, oh, never- credit to Daniel Craig. They wrote this that she would be in her underwear in the shower and he was like I really don't think that in this situation she would have just taken the dress off and then gotten in the shower like it's more impactful if she's fully clothed and what I love about it is then he climbs in in the dress shirt his second dress shirt that's been ruined because <laughs> he's got blood on the first one he got one, blood on yeah. the first one he played a hand and came back to find her up here and just the, the shirt slowly getting wet and kind of becoming see through as they're yeah. set in the shower is 
is so good. Yeah. Not wild about her, like him, like sucking her fingers. I know but... that's that's so sexy. <laughs> I like, guess, but like, it's... I mean, it's Bond, so I'm gonna have to just get over this. But like, the rapidity of a Bond romance has always bothered me. That like he meets people and is in love with them after a day. And it will particularly bother me, Inspector. But like, I mean, I get it. It's heightened. Yeah, it, like it's she, heightened circumstances. Saying... He is genuinely providing comfort to her in this moment. Like, I love how seriously they treat death in this film. Like, he had to earn his first two kills to become a double O. He even admits that his first one was kind of difficult and has this big impact and is treated seriously, much like the Bourne movie. But like, I, I love that it, like him sucking on her fingers comes after that bit where she goes, like, I've got blood in my hands and I can't get rid of it. And yeah, like, I, 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 I understand I, it. It's just a bit no, like, I, I, all sure, right, I, dude, it's just, you've just met this lady. Maybe don't suck on her finger. But... I know. It works. It's sexy. I <laughs> yeah, appreciate it. It is. It is. So during night two, Le Chiffre fusts Bond because he has become aware of his tell. It's ostensibly because of Mathis, we'll, we'll, we'll figure out later. But for now, yes, he, he busts him. Vesper won't give him an extra five million, because you can buy back in right up until the end uh, with an additional five. She won't give it to him. He's considering just going and grabbing the fucker. But yeah, instead, he, like, takes a, he takes a table knife. I know. Then <laughs> said Felix Leiter of the CIA, classic recurring Bond character, the first time he's canonically been black. He is black in Never Say Never Again, but that's not in canon. He says, right, you're clearly better at poker than me. <laughs> I'll give you some of my chips. But the CIA get to bring him in. And Bond, without consulting anyone, is like, yeah, cool. So Le Chiffre then has him poisoned. And Bond has to self-medicate. But he does, and he returns, and he wins the game. All good stuff. Him grabbing the salt to make himself vomit, and then stumbling out to the car to defibrillate himself. I adore him just being like, yeah, I'll go to a hospital, but I'm going back inside now. <laughs> just strutting back in. For, like, the third time there's been some sort of major, like disturbance and he's had to just come back inside I'm like right where were we that last hand almost killed me you know what i also really really appreciate about this movie wow. the restraint of introducing kind of some classic bond elements i think it's pretty clear that they're kind of vaguely setting up tobias menzies to be i know he's villiers or whatever it is but he feels yeah. almost like a q in some ways yeah uh, just just in terms of being like obviously he's m's right hand man but like he's one of the people who's like on the phone and kind of i've seen people speculate that the guy that put the tracker in him is from Q branch as well, but yeah, uh, like like but they don't they don't actually explicitly have like a Q in this movie. No, they don't. Paddington's on the way. Don't worry. Yeah, they hat tip to Vesper and Money Penny. Yes, the money's here, worth every penny or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Like they have these things where like quite easily they could have had like Villiers could have been Money Penny. Uh, they could have had a queue, sat a queue branch, and all these other things, but they kind of restrain themselves. And yeah. the only element of recurring bondness is Felix Leiter, who hasn't been in the Bond movie in like 20 years at yeah, that point. A long, long time, a long, long time. And he was like, I don't know for sure. I think he was a different actor every time out. There's, there's one now. actor who played him twice. Okay. Jeffrey Wright will be the king of Felix Leiter with three performances. It's wild that he's a robot as well. Um, <laughs> so I guess spoilers for Westworld. <laughs> So, with <laughs> poker out of the way, Vesper is kidnapped, Bond is gravely injured giving chase, Le Chiffre tortures him for his password, but Mr. White bursts in and kills him, leaves Bond and Vesper alive, the money is transferred to them, they run away together, Bond quits MI6. I'm glossing over because we're going to talk about it in depth. This sure happens. Uh, the, the, the brutality of this torture, like sat on a chair with the bottom cut out, naked, and then whipping him. And like, I like the very first one, when he just very gently just swings it and it makes light contact, and he's like, ah, oh, fuck. 
And then he's just, like, absolutely caning him with this thing. It's like, I'm sorry, Bond would have, like, massive testicular trauma here and yeah. would not be able to fuck it at Vesper in the next scene. What I really <laughs> like about this is when I was watching it with my partner, she's not seen this movie. I don't think she's seen it in full before. Yeah. And so I've been kind of going, like, how sexy is this movie? And she's like, mm, is it? Is it that sexy? Yeah. They get to this scene and then she's like, oh, look, they've taken them to an abandoned warehouse. Look how sexy it is. I'm like, oh, she has no idea what's about to come yeah. up. And so naked, so sweaty. He, like, dangles <laughs> the rope over his shoulder and it's like mm. <laughs> he's gonna fuck you it's brutal as well and Bond's like the physical reaction to it as well like seeing Bond that vulnerable because you know he gets beaten up and tortured a little bit in the past but like it's always like Bond is never in real danger and it's like the level of physicality Craig is bringing here like s- sitting there a fucking Adonis and Mads being like oh you take care of your body but then it's also the things like oh if I've got an itch down there and then he hits him and he goes like no 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 to the right yeah, yeah, yeah. the horny torture scene is everything it's poker and this are kind of the legacy of the film in a yeah, lot of and, and then the movie kind of ends at this point like, yeah that's like, the end of the movie it's a great movie five stars <laughs> no sorry stuff yeah happens. no but it's, it's, it's that thing where like they, they wrap up some little bit they do very much it feels like when he's like sitting on the chair and then Mathis gets dragged away and then Ava's there and then the dude comes with the money it's all got the filmic language of and this is the end of a classic Bond movie but then a lot of other stuff happens a realistic Bond movie like if the movie were to end exactly like Dying another day the movie would end in the ho- in the hospital bed with Vesper and Bond shagging Ra- yeah. Mathis has been taken away we've been told he's the villain who's like giving the sheet that tells yes your friend Mathis is my friend Mathis yes. yeah and then the movie carries on for about another 20 minutes yeah and I think it sucks but <laughs> I don't think it sucks but I do think it's it is the weakness of the Craig Bonds it's like we said like you you've had this big emotional payoff and everything and then asking you to care while he just kills a bunch of nobodies and like I don't like the way that Vesper's death is handled and like you know it does all it ends in that cool way of like him linking back up with Mr. White and everything but I don't know it's just it's a little bit hard to care and it's like they've gone all in on their big Venice action scene and like one of the floating houses like collapsing and everything and it's like on paper that sounds cool it's just I'm not here for it after everything we've just done no and it is it is the entire thing of like we are trying to create an overarching thing but we haven't established any of this beforehand like it would be more interesting interesting if it was Mr. White rather than this guy with the eye patch who yeah, hasn't like, been who the fuck up is to this dude? Time. I'm going to disagree. I do think that the death of Vesper is well, good. Well, okay, so like they lay it on so thick with like in the hospital, he's like, everything that's left of me is yours. And it's like, this is you've known her three days, two days, I don't know. And like the degree to which he is madly in love with her it's like, oh, he must know and he's playing her. But then it's revealed he doesn't know because M has to call him and be like, there's a lovely gentleman from the treasury here saying we're missing about 10 million dollars and all that. I was like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> and then he goes and finds her and everything. But like, I don't know, like, it's so... And they're doing it so that they can reach this point of like, he's learned not to get too close to the women in these missions and like, he's projecting with job done, the bitch is dead, which is a line from Casino Royale. It's, I think it might be the last line in the, in, in the book. And like, obviously, that's not his genuine feeling. Like, he's trying to pose as like, tough guy, like... And like, the next movie, like, has an extended sequence where they wrap up the the Vesper Lynn plotline. Yes. 
But it bothers me the degree to which it's like, oh, and they're just so in love now. It's like, are they? Okay, that's that's fair enough. Like, it is it is very quick. But I do enjoy that the 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 flip side of like them being in love so quickly is that he's out of not out of love, but like so immediately kind of hurt and wounded and kind of saying things that he's probably going to regret if she were to survive. Yeah. Where they're just like, oh, we'll kill her, and he goes like, well, not if I do it first, and yeah. like, all these different things where like he immediately feels so betrayed by this thing where he's invested. Yeah so much into this person and i think all that emotionality tracks yeah that all works it's just i i kind of wish that they weren't madly in love until you can imply they've been in venice for a month or something yeah like like, like, they're madly in love in the hospital i'm like really like yeah like if this if this was like a year later and bond did retire and went away and kind of like they were just oh we finally tracked you down and like we're we're missing this money exactly yeah all of that would then track for me it's one of those things i think a lot of movies feel like they needed just that one last pass on the script and like I feel then this would have all clicked for me we do get that trope of like you know she drowns but he's got infinite breath much like in Bourne but it's sad like and in the book I think she she ODs on sleeping pills and is like I'm so sorry and then kills herself and they didn't like that and Paul Haggis came in and was like no I feel the elevator and all that works and yeah I, I guess it does and like yeah it being like another contributor to like okay it's not good that he's a sleazy misogynizer but like this is why he's like that yeah i appreciate them going for that they do say cell phone which fuck off and the sony laptop and all that and but i'm very intrigued how we're going to feel about quantum of solace because i've not i seen have it not seen it so long i remember so little about it which like, really the, the, when the, specter the... is like hey remember that thing in quantum of solace and i was like nah <laughs> But yeah, the thing, the thing with Quantum of Solace, well, the only thing is, and it, as you say, like, if this movie had one more pass in the script, would it be kind of tightened up and perfect? Yeah. You get to Quantum of Solace, which is probably the poster child for movies that were hurt by the writer's strike. Yeah. Like, it, it's one of the, like, big casualties where it's like, we have to make this movie now. It's um, that and but, Heroes. <laughs> well, it's, it's that, it's Heroes. I mean, Star Trek's, like, one of the survivors where, like, Star Trek arguably gets better <laughs> despite being made during the writer's strike. But, like, Quantum of Solace, they go in without a script. And I'm fascinated to see how that movie's going to stack up. That's gonna be a time. So yeah, he gets Mr. White at the end. And in the fucking, I think in the Quantum of Solace video game, there's like a extended sequence between him calling him and shooting him, and I, I don't know. I haven't played it, but yeah. I assume Mr. White is Inspector, the one I've not seen, or like some reference to him. Because like, he escapes in Quantum of Solace. Spoilers. I don't, I don't I guess he is. I remember there was a character who I'm supposed to remember, and I didn't remember him, <laughs> but it might have been Mr. White, I don't know. Alright, so Villain Watch returning from Ben and Matt's Marvelous Journey. Mads is a king of charisma and acting and just being a big sexy beast who everyone on the planet is incredibly attracted to. I like all the classic Bond touches, the facial scar, the crying blood, the inhaler. I like that he's ruthlessly about the numbers. He does a really good job here. The torture scene is great. All of his scenes are great. I just don't think his plot line is very well written or that's what I thought before we came in here but I think you saying it has made me think yeah that's the truth is that there's just a little bit too much going on around him to make him clear enough. He's undeniably incredibly memorable. Yeah, I mean, I think I think he's he's probably the best villain that this new era of Bond has had. I don't think maybe Javier Bardem is kind of as good, but I do think that Mads is kind of the king. He set the tone for this entire era of Bond's villains. I think the only one I'm going to feel like he's going to be competing with really for like my favorite villain in this kind of run is Seymour Hoffman. Oh, oh. 
Yeah. Is there a film out there that no one's heard of that has both Mads Mikkelsen and Philip Seymour Hoffman? I don't think so. I don't think so, but what a world it could have been. It's great, like, and, like, villains are a huge part of Bond, and it's kind of why this feature is back for this podcast, because they've got, they have kind of been a bit weak in Mission Impossible up until Philip Seymour Hoffman, and in Bond. But, like, they're a huge thing for Bond. Like, villains, almost conceptually in, like, mainstream cinema, probably owe a huge amount to Bond. Yeah. So, it's important that if you're going to reboot this, you need a fucking strong villain. And they, they have one, for sure. Like, they, Mads becomes a massive star off the back of this. Or an international star. A global star, even. But yeah, I think it could have we could have tightened up his plotline a little bit. But in terms of what he is doing and, like, memorable villains he's crushing it mr white mysterious but not you know kind of a non-entity yeah, like, like, do, do we, none, of, none of the other villains in this movie kind of like hit i don't think yeah. we should discuss eva green as a villain no malaka the 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 free runner that's memorable because of what he's doing it's kind of a fun little like side villain obano and his crew maybe a little bit racist like with oh they brought machetes to montenegro it's like would they bring machetes everywhere or are we doing this as what African terrorists do? Like, <laughs> I don't know. And then everyone else is just nothing. But... Yeah, like, there isn't there isn't a Jaws or an odd job in this movie. No, there is not. What there is in this movie is a theme song. So we look at how did Tom survive in Mission Impossible? We look at did you throw up in the Bourne movies? With Bond, we're already looking at villains and women, which are two of the staples. So for this, we thought, how's the theme? And we have Chris Cornell of Soundgardens. You will know my name. What do you think of this? I don't think it fits the movie. I don't either. I think it is got it's definitely evocative of some Bond theme songs but it's in a different style than you usually get which isn't necessarily a bad thing but I just it doesn't quite fit especially coming after that like really like slow old school intro and then to play this kind of like really upbeat song. You know, you know who probably should have done the th- song for this movie? Who? Duffy. Okay. Because obviously like it's that big brassy female vocalist like yeah. maybe Maybe yeah, Amy yeah. Winehouse as well, but I don't know whether or not she's kind of like crested to her career. But like one of those two. Yeah, I guess Duffy was in then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like 2005, 2006, you probably could have got one of those two to do it, and it probably would have fit. I mean, this is nowhere near as bad as the next song. <laughs> what's your get... What's your favorite Bond song of all time? Yeah, I, I really like Paul McCartney's "Live and Let Die." Very good. I like "Nobody Does It Better." I like that quite a lot. Yeah, there's quite a lot of good ones. There's, there's quite a lot of good ones. And, like, Skyfall probably is the kind of, the, the ideal Bond song for this era. For it's obviously a yeah. huge, huge, huge hit. You're a huge fan of Sam Smith, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, look, I'm, I'm gonna, like, full-on make you watch the, like, Radiohead recut of That's that. That's fine. I will. <laughs> so, female agency. So, this topic, again, largely exists because of Bond. Because Bond girls, while a big thing, in some ways it's, like, good to be one, they, under a modern lens of not being an asshole. They are traditionally not treated very well. They sleep with Bond on site, they get murdered, they get backhanded, they get tortured, they get fridged, they are objectified, etc, etc. Eva Green is not being objectified, as we've established. No, she she fights back, she's feisty. She she does have a lot of the kind of money penny things, yes. where and she it like, does takes his barbs like, and throws them back. Yeah, it does seem like that's what they're doing, like, with that little money penny quip at the beginning. And, you know, she does get mansplained too, by both Bond and Mathis. She does give back. 
she is in these low-cut dresses and like when she's like resuscitating him in the car she has to lean over with the giant cleavage and it's like "Ah, okay but like she's not like in a bikini or like doing any of that and like i don't know she is treated better than the average but then there's also stuff like get the girl out and the bitch is dead and i i I understand that second one he's he's performing that almost but there's still some stuff here that like again like for bond this is a million miles better but like it's still not ideal in places. i think i think <laughs> i think you have to remember that bond at its core is kind of like a little bit vaguely misogynistic oh, it's yeah. full of toxic mas- masculinity and i think but i think this movie's engaging with both of those things which i think is what makes it so interesting it is and like i love her giving it back to him and like her like getting the best of him in the like well you've got daddy issues and she's like motherfucker you have a giant chip on your shoulder you are an orphan you are this you are that it's why i'm excited to see what phoebe waller bridge is going to do to this franchise so if she is if she is there to kind of punch up the female characters so am i because skyfall is great because m is arguably the bond girl but then what happens inspector is i hate it <laughs> yeah olga kurilenko is on the cu- on the poster for quantum of solace and i remember nothing about her other than she's kind of around for most of the movie Mm-hmm. Speaking of them, you know, she's a boss bitch. Fantastic. Great choice to keep her. The only surviving element. It does muddy things a little bit chronologically, but they're saying this is the beginning, and coincidentally, this is M. I think this movie, like, again, I was I was a lot higher on the female agency in Mission Possible 3. I think I'm higher on it in this one, but I think this is, again, a step up from Mission Possible 3 in terms of, like, how it's deploying its female characters. May I present the counter-argument of Solange Dimitrios, who is a fuck toy who bangs him a immediately almost then gets tortured and murdered and it's not quite a fridge because he doesn't actually care about her but like i don't know like it's still handled better than the equivalent of this character inspector and... well, I, I don't i don't i don't think it is a fridge because it isn't no it's not quite it's because it's, it's not for his emotional development it's literally just like these are bad guys women will die in this case look what um, happens when you do this <laughs> look what happens when you do this you're emotionally cold you don't actually give a shit about this woman um yeah. but you've also killed off anyone else who would have any information for it yeah. So the other people who want information are going to go after this innocent person. This is on you, Bond. And but then, like in terms of a behind-the-scenes thing, the scene where she's like riding bareback on a horse in a bikini, she asked for a body double because she was in physical pain from doing oh. that, and they said, "No, this will be your classic Bond girl moment. It should be you." And it's like, okay. Fuck you, quite frankly. Yeah, okay, that's Um, fair enough. Yeah, again, like, Vesper, I think, I don't have the ability to rank the Bond girls in terms of, like, not being horrifically sexist off the top of my head, but she's got to be right near the top. They're doing better. We'll give them that. So... Next week is the Bourne Ultimatum, the end of Bourne being good, uh, when it arguably didn't start that well. But yeah, we'll there will still be some Bourne, but like we'll have an actually good one. I'm excited for this. I'm excited particularly for you to see it for the first time. Right? Yeah. yeah, That will be good, and Bond will return in Quantum of Solace after that. We, we, like, again, we, we, we're in this weird phase where Bourne has one good movie left, Bond has at least one good movie left. Yeah, yeah. And, and Mission Impossible's just gonna fuck and fuck and fuck. Yeah, Exactly, Mission Impossible's got the three best movies in the franchise, sequentially. Well, there you go. We look forward to that next week. We have been your secret agent men. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye. Secret agent men.